are continuing our series uh, on the values of our church. And we do this every single year in, in September. And this is all six locations uh, of Bethany. And we're all essentially talking about the same thing, obviously a bit more contextualized uh, depending on the location and, and context. And so uh, today, as we continue this series called Gather, Grow, and Go, uh, we are talking about the idea of gathering uh, and why we gather uh, and the importance of gathering as a church. And so uh, with that said, uh, our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18, and we did this last week. If we can just stand uh, for the reading of the scripture. The word of the Lord says this, Now when Jesus came into the, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some, uh, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have called us here to be the church. And oftentimes we forget what that means. We forget why we gather and the importance of it. And so, God, would you remind us today on why that is and why that's important. We thank you for creating the church, this community, to be the beacon of hope and light to our world, to our community. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to do so. But help us and strengthen us to be just that. Thank you for loving us so well. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Now, as we talk about the church, uh, I just want to start off by, by stating a few statistics that I found uh, in studies done by this group called the Barna Research Group, uh, who uh, is an organization that's been around for many, many years studying the trends uh, of church uh, and just a few that stood out to me were these. And this is a, a survey of over 96,000 Americans over the last 20 years. Uh, and here are some interesting findings that I observed. This is very recent. 32% of practicing Christians, and, and they identify as practicing Christians as uh, one that would at least go to church once a month uh, and that adhere to the orth orthodox belief of Christianity. Uh, 32% of practicing Christians no longer attend church since the pandemic. And we've seen this even in our own church. Uh, in 1993, church attendance across America was 45%. Uh, today, this was actually 2020, uh, 29%. Barna Group also identified uh, as... Uh, Generation Z, which is the age bracket of 13 to 25, uh, which we have some here, many in our church, uh, to be the first truly post-Christian generation. And they would define post-Christian as 50% uh, of that demographic or less 
identify as being a Christian and uh, that the majority would identify with something uh, that is secular or, or uh, worldviews that are antithetical to the Christian faith. And we've seen this, and I've seen this as a pastor and talking to other pastors at different churches, that people, especially young people, are leaving the church, and oftentimes uh, the Christian faith in droves. And this has been the case for the last 20 years, uh, but it's been accelerated in the last two years since the pandemic. Now, the reality is many of us can understand why this might be. Many of us, we have guesses as to why uh, there is so much running away from uh, the church, from the Christian faith. There's confusion. There's skepticism. There's doubts. There's even resentment when it comes to our faith and the church. And when surveyed, it is almost always associated with the fact that Christians have failed to embody the character of Jesus. There's a famous quote, and many of you may have heard of this by Gandhi, where he says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. And, and as surveys uh, have been submitted, and, and there's a lot of similarities as to why people would be running away so fast from the church and oftentimes, again, their faith. Uh, and here are a few of them. Church has been harmful and hateful. And maybe you've seen this too, but there's oftentimes where all, I live just south of the stadium and we'll drive through the stadium. And anytime there, there's a game, whether it's the Seahawks or Mariners or whatever it is, we'll see people on the stands, in the na- or not the stands, but on the sidewalks, uh, in the name of Jesus, with big banners, with real ugly and hateful and, and profane messages, uh, and with a bullhorn or a microphone uh, telling everybody why they will be going to hell. Churches are often associated with uh, not only these harmful and, and hateful messages, uh, but especially in the last couple of years, associated with Christian nationalism. We see signage that says, Jesus is my king, and, insert president's name, whoever that might be, is my president. We see signs that say, uh, it's all about God and country. And I would say this, anytime we add the word and next to Jesus, there's a problem. And trust me, I say this as a very proud American who my family and I, as immigrants, have experienced many privileges of being in this country. And so this isn't an anti-American statement, but what I am saying is that oftentimes people are turned away and turned off from the church, especially the evangelical church, uh, because they, or I guess we, are so uh, strongly associated and attach ourselves to, to this nationalism, what I would say to a degree of idolatry. Not only that, uh, as more surveys come in, uh, many run away from the church because of our attachment and our history to, well, really white supremacy. Even having a history uh, of, of using the Bible to justify slavery and segregation and, and even uh, banning interracial marriages. Churches have been accused of being homophobic and sexist and full of 
hypocrisy and, and mean-spirited people and judgmental people and the church being too political or too not political enough. And for those of you that have been around the church, whether it's at Bethany or other churches around the country or the city, you've seen glimpses of this. And we sit back and we realize, okay, these numbers make sense. You know, several years ago when I was in college and, and had this zeal for, for Jesus and to evangelize and to bring people to Christ and to church, uh, it was a wonderful season of my life. And I remember I was interning at a church uh, as, a, as a youth intern, and, and I brought one of my students uh, to, to church, a different church actually, for that evening service that uh, I would occasionally attend. Uh, and he brought his grandfather, who didn't identify as being a Christian. Uh, he did identify as being, being gay. Uh, and I thought, that's okay. The church is loving. The church is accepting. The church may have different views, but that's not the point right now. The point is I brought them to this church that I visited. Uh, and the pastor was talking about uh, church leadership. And I didn't know that. It just happened to be that day that I showed up with my one of my students and his, his grandfather. Uh, and he started talking about how this particular church had specific leadership distinctives and guidelines. And, and as he was talking about elders or leaders of the church, uh, he said that they would not have women, and nor would they have those that identify as being LGBT as one of their leaders. And then at the end of it, he made a little sarcastic joke saying, because we are not Brokeback Baptist Church. And if you aren't familiar with that movie, it's, a, it's an older movie uh, about two gay men. And the worst part of that is the congregation together started laughing. And I don't blame him. My friend's grandfather in the middle of that service stood up and walked out of the church. And my heart was so broken to the point of tears. And again, I know that churches historically have different views on LGBT, and that's not, that is not the conversation for today. My point is this. Wow, that was hurtful and very painful. And you can imagine the hurt that was in my friend's grandfather. Not just the joke, the mean joke on stage by the pastor himself, but by the fact that the congregation all started laughing together. You know, not too long ago, I had a conversation with someone uh, at our church, actually. And the conversation, I was like, hey, I haven't, I haven't seen you for a while. And, and her response to me was very fascinating. And she said, that since the beginning of COVID, when we weren't allowed, essentially, in the building because of, you know, mandates and whatnot and our decisions as a church, uh, she said, you know what, since not going to, to church, I, I realized something. And, and what I was hoping for as she was saying that I realized something was like, okay, you missed it and you want to come back and, and you felt like there was something missing in life and oh my goodness, I'm so glad that you're back. She says, Prince, what I noticed is that after not going to church for so long, I noticed that nothing changed. 
And, and what she meant by was like, she didn't get struck by lightning uh, when she decided not to come back. Uh, nothing bad happened. Nothing necessarily great happened. But she was just saying that everything was just normal. There was nothing different. And what she was trying to convey is that what she has been experiencing and what she has learned and realized through the pandemic and not physically going to church is that church was probably to her a bit more irrelevant. And so again, no wonder that many are seeking meaning and significance, morals and ethics elsewhere, outside, anywhere but the church. And if that's you, if you've been hurt by the church, whether you're here, whether you're watching, whether you have uh, been on the other side of jokes, of pain, of sarcasm, of homophobia, of sexism, of uh, racism, or, or hurt, or gossip, or judgmentalism, or hypocrisy, I am so sorry you experienced that. I'm so sorry you experienced that. And now more than ever, the question of the church, what is it and why do we go, becomes something that many, especially Christians, have to grapple with today. And I believe what we must do as a church is also answer the same question that Jesus answered his friends, his disciples, essentially his mini church in the first century. We must answer that same question. And in the question, again, is found in, in the reading, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. I'll just read that one verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Essentially, who are people, uh, what are people saying that who I am and the location is really important that the writer Matthew wrote Caesarea Philippi because he wanted to distinguish between Caesarea Philippi, which was on the mountainside, uh, versus Caesarea on the coastal side in modern-day Israel. And so what Matthew was saying is Jesus and his, and his disciples, they were in Caesarea Philippi, which was, again, a border town near the mountains where there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles in this area would oftentimes cross paths, do life together, learn from one another, converse with one another, trade with one another. It was also where there was this famous shrine where people came to, idol, to worship the idol Pan, P-A-N, to idolize Pan, who was considered the god of all, the universal god, the god of all. And this is where we get the word pantheism. If you've ever heard of the word pantheism, it's it, pantheism is this worship uh, of nature, of, of everything that we see. It's different from understanding that there's, the beauty of God is in everything. It's different from that. It's a belief that everything ultimately is God, pantheism, pan, everything. And so here in Caesarea Philippi was the worship and the, and the shrine of the god of pan. And so there in verse 14, it says they reply because they don't understand uh, what the right answer to this question is. When Jesus says, who do you think 
Uh, who do people say that I am? What they're realizing is that people in their context, where there's worship of, of this idol named Pan, where, where there is a melting pot between not only Jews, but the Gentiles who bring all sorts of different worldviews, religions, uh, cultic gods, and ideologies. And what they're saying is that, you know what, people are confused as to who you are. Because there are different messages of who God is, of how to do life, how to live the life to its fullest, how to live the good life, how to experience joy and fulfillment, how to receive this afterlife. Uh, The things that many Christians believe is attributed to Jesus when Jesus says, well, who do they think I am in this world, in this context, with everything that's going on? And they say, well, they're confused, essentially. You know, some say you're, you're, you're this prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. The others say you're Jeremiah. Or some say you're just one of the prophets, one of the teachers, a good person. But ultimately what they're saying is they believe you're everything, you're all of these things, but ultimately you are not God. Essentially, what people are believing is that you are not the only God. Because according to the worship and the idol pan, everything is God. So I'm confused. People can't actually believe you are the single God. Well, and then verse 15, Jesus says, and I love this question. I believe this is the question that we must answer in order to understand what is happening in the life of our church to our faith, especially in a moment like this Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now, I know that there's a lot of confusion. This is what Jesus said. I know that there's confusion in this culture, in this melting pot with different ideologies and worldviews and and different gods. But Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty and says, okay, as my disciples, as my friends, who do you say I am? Immediately, Simon Peter says in verse 16, answers. And Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, that is a big statement. You are the Messiah. Essentially, you are the Savior that the, especially the Jewish people have been waiting for for centuries and centuries. You are what the Old Testament is talking about when, when the Old Testament prophecies says that there will be a savior a messiah for all of the cosmos for all of the world and simon peter is saying aside from everything that we're hearing and learning from different cults of gods and worldviews and ideologies here's who i say you are peter says you are the messiah my savior my lord the son of the living god and in verse 18 jesus says i tell you you are Peter. That's an interesting line. You are, you are, he, he knows his name, Simon Peter. And, and yet Jesus says, I tell you, and kind of changes his name and says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And there's something that we have to understand about this, this verse. And oftentimes, especially in the English Bible, we often miss it. I tell you. You are Peter. Now, the word Peter is the word Petros. That is, the, in the original language, in the, in, the, in the Greek. Essentially, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Petros, rock. 
And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church, ecclesia. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And so you would think that if we were to go to the original language, that when we read this verse, it would read something like this. I tell you, you are Petros. And on this Petros rock, I will build my church. But it doesn't say that, especially in the original language. It says this. It says, I tell you, you are Petros, Peter. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, there's a little bit of a spelling difference, but the meaning is drastically different and something I don't want to miss. Because oftentimes, especially uh, in church history and church fathers, they would say it's upon Peter himself that the church is built upon. Because it says that... You are Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. But we have to understand that there's two Greek words that are being used to describe Peter and a a rock. Petros, the rock that Jesus is talking about, naming Peter, is rocks, and and in the first century, it's a very architectural word. And, And it does mean rock. It means stone that people would build with, structures would build with. And then he says, on this Petra, on this seemingly rock, again, the word Petra doesn't mean the same kind of rock that Jesus ascribes to Peter. The rock is actually a better definition, a better definition of this rock is actually the word uh, foundation, or even more specifically, a stone foundation. It serves two different purposes. And so what Jesus is saying is that, Peter, you are the rock, and upon you, I will build you, or in plural, you, on this foundation that I have. And so then the next question is, well, what is this foundation? What is it that Jesus is talking about? And what we have to do is we have to go back to what Peter says in this foundation is the confession. It's not Peter himself necessarily, but it's the confession that Peter says. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so essentially Jesus is saying, it's it's not upon you, Peter, necessarily. It's upon what you just said out loud. It's upon your beliefs, it's upon your confession that Jesus is the Messiah. That is going to be the foundation of the church. And on the foundation, the the confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah, it's upon that foundation that the rest of the church is built upon. And so what is the church? The question that we answered at the beginning, what is the church? It's a community of rocks, uh, us, uh, of Petros, building our lives upon what Jesus would, even before in different parables, call a firm foundation, a stone foundation. Here, the Petra of Jesus and, and nothing else. In order, and this is all through collecting of different Jesus is saying in verses, in order to be a beacon of hope to the world, to be a sign that there is a better way to live. 
What is the church? The church is a gathering of people that builds our lives upon Jesus as our foundation. And not for us to just sit there or just arrive and sit in our pews and learn and hear on Sunday mornings and then go leave as if nothing changes. No, the reason why we build our lives as a church together on the foundation of Jesus is so then we can go out into the world and be a beacon of hope, a sign of the kingdom to come. Donald Blausch, a, a former, he's, he's passed now, but he was a theologian and professor, and he wrote a book, a famous book called The Church. And he says this, the real church is a church of sinners who are accounted righteous through faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. They are sinners, however, who are on their way to being righteous through the purifying work of the indwelling spirit. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is already inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but it is carried forward through history as the church lives out its mission of being a witness and sign of the new reality of the conquering Christ whose spirit transfigures and purifies all that it touches. What he's saying is that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection has already began this new kingdom. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is, again, the life, death, and resurrection and everything that that encompasses the teachings of Jesus, and the way that Jesus lived, the, Jesus, the way that Jesus talked, the way that Jesus treated people, the way that Jesus calls us to love and forgive and to reconcile and to find joy in Jesus, that is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God was inaugurated, started with his life, death, and resurrection, but it's carried on throughout all of history and, and the future history to come through the church. And, and as and I this is my prayer, not only for Bethany West Seattle, but for this, the, the universal church, the capital church. And, and I will say this: the capital church is way more important than our little church here. The capital church that we are all a part of in the entire world. My hope, but again, also for our church, is that, A, we would base our foundation, our lives, upon Jesus Christ in order so that we can carry out the mission of being the sign of that kingdom that I just talked about, of what the kingdom of God represents into our world. That means that we have to love. That means we have to forgive. That means we have to be brave and courageous and stand up against injustice, That means we have to serve. That means we have to see and not just look at, but actually see those that are on the margins. That means we have to love who society has deemed as most unlovable. That means we have to be the voice of the weak. That means in everything that we do and the way that we connect and interact with one another, that, we'll, that people will see the sign of the kingdom in and through us, not just as individuals, but, but us as a church. That is my hope. 
And as the church gathers, I love what it says in Acts chapter 2. Luke gives us kind of an idea of what the church, not only of why they, uh, of why they exist to, to be on the firm foundation of Jesus, to be the hope and the sign of the new kingdom to come, but how the church should look. And it's almost like a practical manual. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. Uh, they devoted, talking about new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the, pro, uh, the proceeds to all. And, and to any proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent time uh, together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of, the, uh, of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to the numbers of those who were saved. I love what uh, Professor Willie Jennings says about this, this verse. He's a, again, he's an author. He's a theology professor at Yale. And he says this about this Luke chapter 2 verse, verses. He says, Luke gives us insight of a holy wind blowing through structured and subtle ways of living and possessing uh, and pulling things apart. I love that part. I'll read that again. Luke gives us insight of a holy wind blowing through structured and settled ways of living. He continues and he says, People caught up in the love of God not only began to give thanks for their daily bread, but daily bread offered to God whatever they had that might speak that gracious love to others. Again, Luke here is reiterating what the church is all about. First of all, the church has a new way of living. Once these new converts, people from different worldviews and different religions from all over the world in Paul's missionary journeys, uh, when they came to know Jesus, it says that they devoted themselves to the teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. They gave of their possessions to serve one another. They prayed with one another. They went to the temple together with one another. And what Willie Jennings says is that Luke gives insight that through the Holy Spirit and this conversion to a new faith became a new way of living with structure and new settled ways. And really, we may not like the word structure, but another way of structured is, is maybe different habits. And we all have habits in our lives. Some good, some bad. But what Willie Jennings is proposing is that Paul is describing that once we become followers of Jesus, we are saying yes to not just a new way of living, not just to a new God, but to a new way of life that, that requires certain habits. Or, or even a spiritual way of saying it is spiritual disciplines. And if we just quickly break that down first, he says, uh, the church, they were to devote themselves to the teachings of the apostles. So they, it was a place what that they, where they learned. In Luke chapter 4, uh, it says this, when Jesus, when he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue, essentially church. He went to church on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. That's a new way of living, a new structure. And my hope is that we, especially at Bethany, that we would see that on this Sabbath day, on Sunday, that we would gather so we can learn. And again, when I say learn, I don't just mean that, oh my gosh, I'm going to have so many great things to say and you're just going to learn and, and all these things for the sermon. I hope that Jesus does speak in and through me to speak to, to the congregation. I know that Jesus speaks to me as I even prep and as I speak live, real time. But the reality is we learn in so many different ways. We learn from one another. And my hope is that as we gather and become the church, this church becomes a place where we can teach each other through our own lived experiences, through our own wisdom, through our own knowledge, uh, through our own cultural differences, through our own diversity, that we would be able to learn and to teach one another, just as it was intended when we see in the book of Acts. But not only were they uh, devoted to teaching from the apostles, but there was fellowship. And, and this, again, more than ever, I think it's so, so vital that so many of us, we think that we can do this spiritual journey on our own. And believe me, if there is someone that is the most introverted in this room, I promise you it's me. Or I can certainly give you a run for your money. I am very introverted. And this is a hard pill for me to swallow because at the end of the day, I have to acknowledge that even as an introvert, as someone who's oftentimes, I, and I say this and people, I, I'm a little socially awkward and I know that as much as those things are true about me, I also realize that I can't do life alone. And neither can you. And so this church, we gather to learn and to grow in our faith not just from the sermons, but from one another, but we also uh, gather so we can be in fellowship. And again, now more than ever, when we're coming out of isolation, when we come out of quarantine or whatever it is, and when, when there's limitations of, of who we can see and how we can see them, when there's masks, which, trust me, I, I believe in masks, it's fine, we should, we should be wearing it. But when we have our literal faces covered, they, Something, it, it does something to a relationship. When there's meetings and gatherings uh, over Zoom and not in person, and, and again, I understand why that, why that is. It, it, it's good, uh, and it's, it's a gift, especially during this time of pandemic. But I would say, because of those reasons, fellowship is more needed than ever. When there's mental health uh, crisis and mental illness is on the rise, because of the lack of fellowship. My hope is that the church can be a catalyst to that. People's loneliness and depression and anxiety because of this feeling alone. You know, I oftentimes share this story when I was a chaplain at a prison. I was talking to one of the inmates, and he said he just got out of a solitary confinement. And he was describing solitary confinement to me. He was saying it's basically a jail inside of a jail. And inside of solitary confinement, out of 24 hours, he has to be in by himself with nobody around for 23 hours. In one hour, he gets to go outside still by himself to, to work out or to let out some steam, whatever it is, and come back in. 
Uh, and there are some people in solitary confinement, even young people, for years and years. And what he's, when, when I was talking to this particular inmate, he was saying, it wasn't the lack of TV. It wasn't for the lack of certain resources or certain privileges. It was the sheer and utter loneliness that was eating me up inside. And what this tells me is that there's this natural human condition, the way that we are wired from the very beginning when Genesis, when, when God created Adam and Eve, it was because of the essential need for community, for fellowship. There's an kind of a nerdy Christian word around the Trinity called uh, a relational, relational Trinitarianism. It's this understanding that the Trinity in and of itself embodies community, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. And if we are to bear the image of God, we must bear the image of community with one another. So don't isolate yourself. And may this place that we gather, not only that we can grow and learn, but we can be together and do this journey of life together. Uh, And what else we see? We we see that people gave as as people were in need. Now, as a church, I hope that we can embody this too, that like a family, we all have a, a part to play in this church family. And mainly because we're all gifted in different ways. My hope is that we, would, that we would take an inventory of what our gifts are, what our passions are, and to serve one another. You know, when people are sick, when people are going through a tough time, when people, again, are feeling lonely, when people just need someone to talk to, When people are hiding in their own shame and guilt, my hope is that this church, we can serve and give to one another. Maybe it is resources. Maybe it is finance. We've done this as a church. I hope that we continue to be known for our generosity. And lastly, it says breaking of bread in their homes. That the church would gather, as Jesus did as custom, on the Sabbath that we'd find rhythms of worshiping together, to praying together as a community, to learn as a community, to to fellowship with one another, to serve one another, that also, that that would also be broken up into groups of intimacy. Nowadays, we call it small groups, and we're going to have small groups launching this week, and I really encourage you to consider joining one. In other words, the church includes a level of depth thoughtfulness and care and intimacy with one another. There's a sociologist named Robert Putman, and he wrote this famous book called Our Kids. And he wrote another book called uh, Bowling Alone. And he says, our national myths often exaggerate the role of the individual heroes and underestimate the importance of a collective effort. My hope is that our church would embody what we see in Acts chapter 2. But before we even get to Acts chapter 2, we must, as a church, answer the question, who do you say that I am? And again, like the the people that that were in Caesarea of Philippi, any day with different messages of who, uh, who, who God is, of what the right way to live is. I mean, there's so many questions combating Christianity even today as we enter into a post-Christian society. 
uh, as there's certain ethics and morals that are being challenged. My hope is that we can base our life on the firm foundation of Jesus and nothing else. And we come together with that firm foundation as a church to be a beacon of light and hope for the rest of the world, to our community, to our family, to our neighbors, to embody, to really embody the kingdom of God within us expressed outwardly. See, the meaning of church and why we gather has been lost and has been lost at best, completely hijacked at worst. And my hope is that we can reclaim what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to have our firm foundation in Christ and Christ alone. And in order to that, may we practice a new way of living, a changing in our habits, that we would devote ourselves to spiritual growth of teaching, not just, again, not just here in the sermon time, but with one another, to be in fellowship with one another, to give to one another, to serve one another, to break bread with one another in their homes for intimacy. That is the kingdom of God. That is the church. And although many of us have been hurt by the church, myself included, please do not give up on the church. The church is the beacon of hope for the world. I believe that. I wouldn't be up here today if I didn't believe that. And that has been initiated by Jesus, our firm foundation, Petra, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And may we recognize that today as we uh, partake in communion together. And again, if you're at home, this is a good time to bring out your bread and, and juice or cracker and whatever it is. And, and if you didn't get one of these, will you raise your hand? I would love for someone to get, get a communion cup for you. Okay, if you have it, let's open the bottom side together. And let's just hold this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus says, this is my body to his disciples. He says, he breaks a piece of bread. This is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. And so together, as a church, with the firm foundation being grounded in Jesus, let's partake, as Jesus says. And he takes this cup, and he says, take this cup and drink. This is my blood that was shed for you. Take in remembrance of me. Let's drink this together. God, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection that has initiated your kingdom here on earth. And may we ground ourselves as a church on your kingdom and your kingdom alone so that when the world sees us, they will see nothing but you. They won't see the hatred, the violence, the racism, the sexism, the hypocrisy, the judgmentalism. 
Yes, we're all human, and yes, we will fall many times. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. But God, may we not be known for that. May we work so hard to be known and only known for your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, your acceptance. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to be your beacon of hope. Forgive us for the ways that we have relayed a bad message or the wrong message of who you are. Inform us as the church to just do better. And God, we know that that takes intentionality that requires gathering this rhythm of Sabbath to rest in you, to learn from you in a collective gathering that you call church that requires fellowship for us to be with like-minded people, not only like-minded people, but also like-minded people, to share our lives together, to give to one another, whether it is resources or finances, but also our time, our talents, our gifts, whatever it is. Be in intimacy with one another as you as our firm foundation. May we be the church that has been envisioned since the beginning of the New Testament. In your name we pray, amen and amen.